John chapter 18. And I'll read verses 1 to 14 and then verses 28 to 40. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And then over to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. I remember it vividly. It was 1995 the O.J. Simpson trial. And if you remember O.J. Simpson running back 
famous running back in the NFL, was accused of murdering his wife and one of her friends, Ronald Goldman. And from the chase scene on the Los Angeles freeway in the white Bronco, as he was cowered in the back of the Bronco and as somebody was, they were, they were running from the police to the, to the bloody sock found in his bedroom, to the bloody glove, the evidence was mounting. It just seemed so obvious of the crime and the murder he had committed, and, but he had hired a dream team of lawyers. It was a very public criminal trial, and at the end of the trial, the verdict was announced, and he was found not guilty. And there was an uproar, and, and, and it just seemed so obvious. How could this happen? And then two years later, there was a civil trial with a civil jury, and they found him guilty, which in the civil trial meant that he just had to pay a bunch of money. And, and it confirmed what, what seemingly was so unjust, this, the injustice of this trial. Now, that's an example over 20 years ago that we've seen since, right? Trials that you see happen and, and it seems so obvious. And when the verdict's announced, there's you know, riots of protest over the injustice of the trial. And yet from OJ Simpson and back further, and since then, there is not one trial that seems to be unjust that matches the injustice of this arrest and trial of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that in chapter 18, in the beginning when he's arrested, to the remainder of chapter 18 where he's tried, to chapter 19 where he's flogged and crucified, that happens in a whopping six hours. He's arrested, he's tried, He's nailed to a cross in about six hours. And the trial was wrought with mistakes. And it was wrought with injustice. I'll give you three evidences of it. Verses 19 to 23. We didn't read it, but that's where the high priest questions Jesus about his teaching and his disciples. And so Jesus says in verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Well, one of the officers that's standing there thinks this is really disrespectful how Jesus is speaking to the high priest, so he slaps him. And Jesus responds in verse 23, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but what if I said is right, why do you strike me? See, Jesus wasn't disrespecting the high priest. He was just asking for a fair trial, right? And the proper procedure was that they interrogate the witnesses, not the defendant. So Jesus was simply saying, give me a fair trial. But they knew they couldn't win by a fair trial. So they resorted to an unfair trial. And then we see that it happened at night, right? This trial happened at night. Actually, the, the morning hours before the sun rose, the wee hours of Friday morning, they had to light a charcoal fire. It was cold, it was dark. In normal cases, night trials or night proceedings were illegal. You didn't do that. And then, of course, we get to the end, and after the high priest questions several times and Pilate questions, right, they find no guilt. And you say, why? Why was Jesus Christ treated with so much injustice and contempt? And to answer this, we're going to look at the substitute lamb, the suffering king, and the rebellion of man. Let's start with the substitute lamb. 
So one of the keys to understanding what's happening here is to remember that it's Passover. In fact, John, who's the author of this gospel, reminds us and wants us to remember it's Passover. He says in verse 28, verse 39, he reminds us this is Passover time, which meant that it's that annual festival of the Jews where they would come together and remember how God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt through the death of a sacrificial lamb. And in that first Passover, right, God's people were called to slaughter or to sacrifice a lamb, to take the blood, wipe it on the doorposts. And as the Spirit of God brought judgment through the land of Egypt, they would be spared because of the blood of the lamb that was on the doorposts, that there was a sacrificial lamb. And so every year since that time, for the centuries, the Jews would celebrate the Passover by coming to Jerusalem, bringing a lamb themselves that would get sacrificed as they enjoyed the Passover meal as a family, and then a lamb would get sacrificed in the temple right, for Passover. And the key is that these lambs that were brought forth for sacrifice had to be without blemish. They had to be perfect, without blemish. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse one speaks of it. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. And so throughout the Old Testament, lambs were chosen that did not have a blemish. And you say, why? Well, 1 Peter 1.19 says you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so these sacrificial lambs represented, albeit imperfectly, Jesus Christ, who would be without spot, without blemish. And so that explains why this trial happens. That Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is being interrogated, is being questioned, is being tried, is being inspected to see if he's without blemish. Because he's the spotless Lamb of God. And so we see it in this passage, question after question, interrogation after interrogation, starting with Caiaphas and his, his questioning of Jesus, right? They move to an unfair trial because he knows that they can't win by a fair trial. There's nothing wrong with him. And then we get to, to verse uh, 30 and Pilate, Pilate says to the high priest, what accusation are you bringing on Jesus? They didn't have an answer. And then we get to obviously verse 38 and Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And the whole point of this whole trial is for you to see, and John wants you to see it, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God without blemish, without spot. And not only is it a lamb without blemish, but he's a lamb that is a substitute. This, this picture concept of substitution is all over this arrest and trial, that Jesus is acting as a substitute for us. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Detail, he entered a garden. And that should bubble up imagery for us of the first garden, 
of the first Adam, the first Adam who was in a garden, the garden of Eden, and the first Adam who betrayed God, hid from God, and was sent out of the garden. And now you have Jesus Christ, the second Adam, walking into another garden as the God-man. And as God, he's about to be betrayed, but as man who has put on flesh, he's about to be betrayed by men and be sent out in our place. And so there's substitution. Jesus Christ gets sent out of this garden in our place. Second appearance of substitution. Look at verses eight to nine. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Here it is. So if you seek me, let these men go. And John says, this is to fulfill the word that was spoken. Of those you've, you've given me, I've lost not one. Right? So Jesus says, take me and let these men go. I'm substituting myself for them. And then verse 11, after Peter cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, you know what Jesus says to him. Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's wrath in our place as a substitute. And then the final appearance of substitution we see is in, in verse 40. After Pilate has questioned Jesus, he's found him not guilty. He says, but there's a custom. Custom is that I release to you a prisoner. Who do you want? Do you want me to release to you Jesus, the king of the Jews? And they say, no, give us Barabbas. You know who Barabbas was? <laughs> he was a man who had participated in a bloody insurrection. He was a murderer. And they say, give us the murderer. So you see a guilty man get released and an innocent man, Jesus, be crucified. Substitution. We see it throughout this passage. Why was Jesus treated with such injustice and contempt? Why? because he was your substitute. He endured the condemnation and the wrath that you and I deserve, which means when you read this and you read the, the injustice and the contempt, everything that happened from the betrayal from Judas to the slap in the face from the officer to the denial from one of his closest disciples, Peter, to the death sentence, all of this as you read it, the author, John, is trying to get us to realize that that is, should have been you, should have been us. That Jesus is stepping into the place we deserve to be to take our punishment. You know, as you read this, and the injustice and the contempt grows in the account, and you see the innocence of Jesus growing and becoming more and more apparent, as, those, as both of those are growing, you're left with one, one conclusion. He must be taking someone else's punishment, right? He must be taking someone else's punishment, and indeed he is. That the justice of God was accomplished in Jesus through human injustice. The justice of God was being accomplished in Jesus through this human injustice. I want you to imagine that you are standing in the middle of a grass field. And on, on both sides of you, you see a brush fire approaching. And it's a, it is a super windy day. And this grass field is super dry. 
And so this brush fire is, is coming quickly, so quickly that you realize I can't get away from it. Now, what, what could you do to survive? Well, if you had a match, if you had a lighter, you could, you could light a fire where you were at and let it start to burn outward, right? Until it created a scorched part of the earth around you. And you could stand in the middle of that scorched part of the earth as the brush fire comes. And when it gets to you, it wouldn't touch you. Why? Because fire doesn't burn where it's already burned. You could stand in the middle, middle of this burned over place and not be touched, not be singed. The brush fire is like God's law. You can't escape it. But if you stand in the middle of the burned over ground, it won't touch you. Say, what's the burned over ground? When Jesus Christ was arrested, tried, flogged, crucified, died on the cross, when he died on the cross, the fire of God's judgment consumed him. Consumed him. He was burnt. So that the death of Christ is that burned over spot, which means that if you stick close to Jesus, if you trust him and you stay near him and you stand in that burned over spot where judgment has already been poured out on your substitute Jesus, you're safe. It can't touch you. That's the amazing news of the gospel. It's the amazing news of the substitute lamb that was consumed by the fire of God's judgment for you. So why was Jesus treated with such injustice and contempt? Because he was the substitute lamb that took your place. Second, because he was the suffering king. He was the suffering king. You can read this account. You can read this account and come to the, the conclusion, ah, oh, poor Jesus, victim of such awful human injustice. Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus wasn't a victim at all in this. He was the king in full control. Look at verse four. I love how this reads. When, when Judas and the soldiers came to take Jesus, it says he stepped forward. He didn't hunker down, hide behind Peter, kind of sit back and see, will they find me? He stepped forward and said, here I am. Who do you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. It says that when he said, I am he, that they fell to the ground and they drew back. Why? Well, that, that I am in the prophecy of Isaiah, it's, it's God's self-disclosure of who he is. In the gospel of John, there are seven I am statements where Jesus is revealing his identity as God, as king. And so when he says, I am he, it's, it's, a, it's a blast of glory. It's what we see in the scriptures. Anytime a human being is in the presence of God, they fall. That's exactly what's happening here. They're standing before, they're coming to arrest God, the king. Jesus is in full control. He's not a victim. He's not a victim in this arrest and trial. But second, so he's not only a king in control, but he's a king of a very different kingdom. And you see this in the dialogue with Pilate, right? So Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, as we see Jesus do a lot, he answers a question with a question, right? So he fires back and says, is this your idea, Pilate? Or did somebody tell you this, right? 
Are you the king of the Jews? Now, there's an easy answer to that, isn't there? Yes. But Jesus knows that the king that Pilate's thinking of is not at all the king that he is. He's a very different kind of king. And so he says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. See, Jesus is saying that his kingdom is from a different place, that his kingdom doesn't usher in by force or violence. And that's the only way that kings took power in the ancient world. This is why it was so shocking to a guy like Pilate that Rome, Jewish leaders, they assumed power by force. That's just the way it happened, force and violence. In fact, the several hundred years before Jesus' arrival, there were Jewish leaders, authorities like Judas Maccabeus and Herod the Great who assumed power by a military revolution. So even in the Jewish world, they, they assumed that you got power by force and violence. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he says, no, the kingdom of God does not come by force. It does not come by violence. It comes through the death of a king. Not a king that's pulling out a sword to get to his throne, but a king who puts the sword away and dies. And that's what King Jesus did. That the kingdom of God comes through the death of a king who gives himself for the good of his people. Now that's a kingdom that this world doesn't know. A king that would lay down his life for the good of his people. So why was Jesus treated with such injustice and contempt? Because he was the substitute lamb that put himself in your place. He's the suffering king who's ushering in a very different kind of kingdom. And then finally, because of the rebellion of man, you see in this passage a very vivid picture of the human heart. You know, if, if it were just the crowds at the end, near verse 40, if it were just the crowds that were dismissing Jesus, you, you might be able to distance yourself from this. But when you look at the spectrum of people and the different kinds of people that reject Jesus in just this arrest and trial and the reasons why they do it, you're gonna see you can't distance yourself from this. Right? It starts with Judas, and Judas is the man who had fooled everyone by his religious hypocrisy. He had everyone fooled because outwardly he, he did all the right things so that when Jesus said to his disciples, one of you is gonna betray me, they didn't go, oh yeah, I, I thought it was Judas. They went, who is it? He had lived an outward life that said he had everything together and yet on the inside he was completely opposite of that. He betrayed Jesus for money. In fact, John says it earlier, he was a greedy man. He was a materialist. And so he betrayed Jesus for money. Then you get to Peter. Now, Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends, closest disciples. And, and he denies Jesus to avoid the consequences of confessing Christ's name. Right? He, he, avoid, he, he denies Jesus to avoid suffering. He denies Jesus to, for comfort. Then you move on to the high priest. And the high priest, representing Jewish religious authority, rejected Christ. Why? Because they were losing control. That's why they rejected Christ, because they wanted control. 
Then you move on to Pilate, and Pilate dismisses Jesus. Why? Because he finally realized this is a poor man from the wrong part of the country with a small band of followers, and they've all left. I mean, at that point, it's a laugher. Of course he's not a threat, right? Pilate was concerned about his power, and as long as Jesus didn't disrupt his power, he dismissed Jesus. You see, all the people in this passage that betrayed, denied, rejected, dismissed Jesus did so for selfish reasons. And it's reasons that you and I know well. This is where we can't distance ourselves because you understand, you understand loving money and stuff more than serving Christ. You understand that. You understand loving convenience and ease and comfort more than serving Christ. Uh, You understand wanting control of your life and control of your environment more than losing control for the sake of Jesus, right? You understand loving power and, and, and loving and wanting people to answer to you more than you want to answer and submit to Jesus. See, you, we all understand these reasons for rejecting Jesus. You're, you're Judas, you're Peter, you're the high priest, you're Pilate, you're Barabbas, We're all in this together with a rebellious heart. And the question is, well, what do we do with it? What do you do with a rebellious heart that is set on rejecting and denying and dismissing Jesus? Well, one option is to look at this arrest, trial, and crucifixion and be so moved by the selfless act of Jesus that you say, I am going to try really hard and live selfless like Jesus did. So you see his selflessness and you go, that is an amazing example of selflessness. Now I'm gonna try really hard to do that. That that is called moralism, right? Moralism says Jesus sacrificed himself, put the good of others before himself. That's an example. And now I'm gonna go follow that example. It's moralism, it doesn't work. Here's why it doesn't work. Because there's three reasons why you would do that. Follow Jesus' example, right? Merely. There's three reasons. One is to earn favor with God. The other is to get people to think you're a great person. And the third is to feel good about yourself. And all three of those reasons are are self, self self-centered. And that is the, the cause of rebellion. That's the reason why we dismiss Jesus, why we reject Jesus. It's because we're committed to self. You see, you can reject Jesus by breaking all the rules, not following his example, and you can reject Jesus by keeping all the rules, following his example. So the question becomes, what is the answer then? The answer for a rebellious heart is submitting to Jesus as lamb and submitting to Jesus as king. Submitting, laying down your rights, bowing before him, falling before him, submitting yourself to him as lamb as king. Now, why do you need both? Why do you need lamb and king? Because both of them, they answer 
the reasons for rejection, whether it's keeping all the rules or breaking all the rules. See, when, when you submit to Jesus as lamb, as substitute in your place, it puts an end to your defensiveness. It puts an end to justifying your sin. You, you realize that? That when you're defensive, when you're justifying your sin, when you're trying to convince yourself it's really not that bad, you're trying to convince yourself that you're doing okay, that you're really doing okay following this example and keeping all the rules, that you, you really don't need a substitute. In fact, John, who authors this gospel, also authors 1 John. And he says in 1 John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Do you realize that your defensiveness is a rejection of Jesus as lamb? That your defensiveness at the core is your heart saying, I don't need a substitute. I'm really okay. I really didn't do that. I'm really keeping up the rules. I really am following well. But boy, when you submit yourself to Jesus as lamb, you submit yourself to him saying, Jesus, you have to be my substitute because I'm a mess. And boy, when you're submitting yourself to Jesus as lamb, confession just flows and repentance flows and there's a soft heart and there's no need to defend yourself because you're submitting to Jesus the lamb. Second though, so the answer for a rebellious heart is submitting to Jesus as lamb, but it's submitting to Jesus as king. Because when you submit to Jesus the king, it puts an end to all your attempts to find your value and your worth and your significance and your identity in anything else. When I mean, we've looked at it here, the, the, the characters in this passage that denied Jesus and rejected him, they did it, why? Well, for Judas, he was trying to find his value in money. For Peter, value and comfort, I don't wanna suffer. For the religious authorities, I just want control. For Pilate, I just want power. I want people to answer to me. Right? There's all those things. It's the same for you and me. That you can, you can put all your marbles in those baskets to try to find your worth, your significance, and your identity. When you submit to Jesus as king and, and, and understand that he's the suffering king that died for you. The most amazing display of love that this world has ever seen, that you will ever see, and you're basking underneath his love, you don't need all that. You don't need control. You don't need power. You don't need money. You don't need stuff. You don't need comfort because Jesus gives it all to you. And once he gives it to you, then you're free to give it all away. You're free to give away power. You're free to, wait, free to give away control. You're free to give away money, stuff. You're free to give away comfort and ease but only when you're submitted, bowing the knee to Jesus as lamb and as king. Oswald Chambers writes this. Whenever God touches sin, it is independence that is touched. Meaning that whenever God touches or convicts of sin, he's convicting of independence. He's convicting of of, of keeping all the rules, following Jesus' example to feel good about yourself, to earn favor, to make others think you're good, right? Or, or, or it's the independence of trying to find your worth and significance in something else, which oftentimes plays itself out in breaking all the rules. 
Whenever God touches or convicts sin, it is independence that is touched, and that awakens resentment in the human heart. That's the rebellion, right? The native human heart that wants to reject, I don't want a king. I'll be my own king. I don't want a substitute. I got this figured out. I don't sin very bad. I don't need a substitute. That, that's the rejection. That's the rebellion in the human heart, and you need to know it's native to who you are as a sinner. I don't need a king. I don't need a substitute. Independence, Chambers says, independence must be blasted clean out. There, is no, there must be no such thing left. Only freedom, which is very different. Freedom is the ability not to insist on my rights, but to see that God gets his. Would you come to Jesus? Would you submit to him as substitute lamb in your place, as suffering king? Let's pray. Father, we confess our rugged independence. We confess the times that plays itself out when we get defensive, when people critique us, when we try to justify our sins so we don't feel so bad about it, when we in independence try to deal with our brokenness. We confess that before you. Father, we confess our desire to have power and to be in control. We confess our desire to, to be our own kings. To not want to relinquish control or to lose control to you, Jesus. To endure the circumstances you bring into our life because we're submitted to you. Father, we pray that you by your spirit would bring us to a place of submission. That you would bring us to a place of bowing the knee and saying yes to you as King Jesus and yes to you as Lamb, as substitute. And that we would experience the freedom of receiving from you what we're trying to find in other places. And Father, as we continue to worship, would you help us to see? Would you help us to position ourselves before the throne and receive the grace and mercy that Jesus, you bought for us? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.